Hello everyone, welcome to the Stephen King Cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Each week I'll review one entry in the bibliography of Stephen King in the chronological order of publication, and this week, I'm looking at one of his bigger ones, a long gestating novel about a small town in Maine, and the grips of a supernatural menace the townsfolk can't understand. Which sounds like every other Stephen King book, but this one has a dome. That's right guys, this week I'm looking at Under the Dome. And just so you know, I will not, and I cannot stress that enough, I will not be reviewing the CBS television series based on this book because when it comes to that, I, I just had, I had to tap out after three episodes and I do not want to go back and revisit it. So before I get into it, uh, I just, I need to kind of explore my relationship with Under the Dome just so I can put this particular review into a little bit of context. When it was first published in 2009, there was a there was a lot of buzz around it. Okay, you know, one it was being publicized as one of his longest books, which in terms of sheer volume automatically puts it up there with the stand and it. And secondly, a lot of the buzz was positive. And as you'll know from my reviews of Lisi's story, Duma Key, and Just After Sunset, Under the Dome uh, was released during a time when my interest in Stephen King was at a low. Just after sunset had a had underwhelmed me at the time, and the existential examinations of life concepts that I hadn't had any experience with, um, with Lisi's story and Duma Key just could not connect with me. So, though the reviews that were coming in were pretty positive surrounding this particular novel, and though it was being billed as a return to classic King, I I personally did not have a lot of anticipation for it. I read it at the time. And I'll get back to that later, okay? So I read it when it came out, um, and then flash forward, okay? Skip ahead to 2013. Word begins to spread that Brian K. Vaughn, critically acclaimed author of Why the Last Man, Deus Ex Machina, and currently, as I, as I say this, the groundbreaking saga, this guy was going to be showrunning an adaptation of the novel with Stephen King and Steven Spielberg as executive producers. Now... This got me excited. Lost was mentioned as an inspiration, and Vaughn often mentioned that he was looking forward to deviating from the source material to make the show fresh. Then I heard that Dean Norris was cast, and without even having to click on the link, I knew that they found an incredible Big Jim Rennie. Who else was he going to play? So heading into the show, there was a lot going for it, and a lot to be excited about. My biggest concern was that it was on CBS. Now... I don't know, guys. I'm sorry. I mean, I, I'm probably going to alienate some listeners right now, but I kind of despise CBS programming. You know, sorry, I, I don't kind of despise it. I 100% despise it. So the fact that Under the Dome was going to be on a station that isn't known for critically praised programming, it made me a little worried. Regardless, I was still going to check it out. 
And to make a long story short, I groaned my way through the first episode and gave up entirely by the end of the second or third. I, I can't remember which. It was pretty early on, but I've never looked back, uh, and I'm pretty happy for it. Um, I mean, I don't know. For everyone that stuck through it, you know, God bless you, um, but it failed to, to resonate with me. I thought that the acting was pretty atrocious. I thought that the way the townsfolk was reacting to the fact that they were under a dome was preposterous. The fact that they, it, you know, I, I, I don't even want to say that they're that the the way that they were reacting was preposterous because that insinuates that they were actually reacting. Um, I felt as though life was just going on under the dome, and I, I don't think that that's some sort of intentional commentary on small town during crises. I just think that it, the everyone involved just failed to capture the the fear um, and just the the, the overwhelming incapability of being able to do anything at, at the sheer concept of a dome cutting you out from the outside world. I, I, fa- I From the get-go, to me, they failed to live up to the basic promise of what Stephen King offered in the first few pages of the novel itself. Um, don't get me wrong, Dean Norris, like I said, was perfect in the role, um, but I, I just, I don't think that they did a really good job at turning him into the big Jim Rennie that he's capable of of playing and that has less to do with Dean Norris, has everything to do with how they wrote the character for him. Uh, the man who played Barbie, I guess, was competent. Um, Julia Shumway, I don't believe was. And then there was Junior, who, oof, guys, Junior, um, stood out like a sore thumb. It was pretty, pretty brutal. I mean, so, I mean, the thing is, it just wasn't good. I just don't think that it was good uh, at all. And, um... You know, in in the couple years that followed, my memory of the book were negatively tinged by the television show. So, as I headed back into the book for the reread, I wasn't looking forward to it. So, I cannot, I can't, I'm going to be talking about this for a while, but I can't put into words how much I was surprised at how much I loved it, the book. You know, everything that I thought that I remembered or what I had known about the book was wrong, okay? The podcast forced me to look at the book a lot closer. Uh, And not only did I love it, I realized that Under the Dome is one of the most impactful novels that he's ever published. And I would say that it's easily in his top five, maybe as high as his top three. And if you wanted to argue that this is the best book that he's written... Because of the points that he's making here on the nature of humanity, of politicians, of the people who vote in the politicians, I won't argue with you. If you want to say that that's his number one, stand by it Um, because I think that you have a pretty good candidate on your hands. So since it was released, I had some negative feelings about it. And those negative feelings had less to do with the book itself, had everything to do with the CBS adaptation of it. It it tainted my memories of reading it the first time around, and I couldn't be happier at at what King was able to do with this novel. Um, it really is a fantastic read. He has a lot to say, and I'm very excited to get into what he has to say. But first, let me read a listener email. So this listener email is from Bryant, who writes... 
I totally agree with you that a lot of critics, and a lot of viewers too, were out to butcher the second season of True Detective before it even began. I guess I sort of understand why someone would hate watch something purely so as to be able to complain about it on Twitter or whatever. It feeds into a pet hypothesis of mine, which is that a great many people in the generations below me don't actually give a damn about the media they consume, but instead care only about the conversations they have about that media in whatever social groups they belong to. They don't care about the thing, they care about the conversation about the thing. And if so, hey, more power to them. Um, it turns out, if it turns out that such distinctions brand me at the ripe old age of 41 as a grumpy old fart, then I'm 100% cool with that. I don't want them kids on my lawn anyways. Regarding Black House, I like that one relatively well, although I think that suffers from A, a mild case of stylistic oddity, and B, a major, ca a major case of not properly being resolved by the Dark Tower novels, which it clearly was designed to do. But overall, I do like it, and more than I like the Talisman. Regarding Mercy, not only did I buy Mercy, but I have a complete collection of King's movies on disc. All the good, all the bad, and all the ugly. Every fake Children of the Corn sequel, I call them Falkwolves. Um, both seasons of the dreadful Under the Dome. Hey, hey, perfect time to, to read this email. Even Creepshow 3, which is utterly unrelated to King or Romero and might get my vote for being the single worst movie ever made. My explanation for this is that I consider myself to be a King scholar. I hope one day to write a lot of books on the subject, and with this being the case, I feel like it is incumbent upon me to have a fairly complete library of his writing, as well as any and all adaptations. So yes, I bought Mercy, and I am not proud of it. Bryant. Okay, guys, uh, now I'm going to do, I'm going to get into the Wikipedia summary of Under the Dome so that I will have a basis upon which I can build my analysis. At 11.44, on Saturday, October 21st of an unspecified year, but somewhat later than 2012, as a faded bumper sticker references Barack Obama's 2012 re-election campaign, the small main town of Chester's Mill is abruptly and gruesomely separated from the outside world by an invisible, semi-permeable barrier of unknown origin at this point. The immediate appearance of the barrier causes a number of injuries and fatalities and traps former Army Captain Dale Barbie Barbara, who was trying to leave Chester's Mill because of a local dispute inside the town. Police Chief Howard Duke Perkins is soon killed instantly when his pacemaker explodes when he gets too close to the dome. This removes the last significant opposition to James Big Jim Rennie, used car salesman and the town's second selectman. Big Jim exerts significant influence within Chester's mill and seizes the opportunity to use the barrier as part of a power play to take over the town. Big Jim appoints one of his cronies, the incompetent Peter Randolph, as the new police chief. He also begins expanding the ranks of Chester's mill police with the questionable candidates, including his son, Junior Rennie, and his friends. Junior has frequent migraines caused by as an as caused by an as yet undiscovered brain tumor, which has also begun affecting his mental state. Unbeknownst to Big Jim, Junior was in the process of beating and strangling a girl to death when the barrier appeared and has killed another girl by the time Big Jim places him on the police force. Elsewhere in Chester's Mill, Colonel James O. Cox, um, who is stationed outside of the dome, so it's not, I don't know why... Wikipedia phrased it like that. So it's not elsewhere in Chester's Mill. It's outside, elsewhere in the world. He's not even he's not even outside the dome. Um, like he is out in Washington. Calls Julia Shumway, the editor of the local newspaper, and has her carry a message to Barbie to contact him. 
Cox then asks Barbie to act as the government's agent in an effort to bring down the dome as it has been become to be known. Drawing similarities to Barbie's army specialization in locating enemy munitions factories, Cox gives him the task of locating the dome's power source, which is believed to be somewhere in the town. Cox is also able to foresee the small-town political ramifications of such a situation. By virtue of a presidential order, Barbie is reinstated in the U.S. military and um, promoted to the rank of colonel. Barbie is also presented with a decree granting him authority over the township. However, small-town politics being what they are, this action is not well-received by Big Jim and his misguided band of renegade police officers. As Big Jim covertly encourages and orchestrates unease and panic among the townspeople to build up his grab for power, Barbie, Julia, and a number of other townspeople attempt to stop things from spiraling out of control. After crossing Rennie's path on several occasions, Barbie is framed and arrested for four murders. He is accused of killing Reverend Lester Coggins, who laundered money for Rennie's large-scale meth operation, and Duke's widow, Brenda Perkins, who were both murdered by Big Jim, as well as the two girls Junior killed. While Barbie is in jail, other residents track the source of the dome to an, an abandoned farm. The device they find in the middle of the farm's orchard Orchard, sorry, is strongly indicated to be extraterrestrial in origin. The restrictions issued by Rennie become more severe and the police force grows more abusive, galvanizing the town and eventually leading some residents to break Barbie out of jail, killing Junior seconds before he can murder Barbie. The semi-organized resistance flees the abandoned farm where multiple people touch the strange object and experience visions. They not only conclude that the device was put in place by extraterrestrial leatherheads, named so for their appearance, but that specifically they are juveniles who have set up the dome as a cruel form of entertainment, a sort of ant farm used to capture beings and allow their captors to view everything that happens to them. On an organized visitor's day, when people outside the dome can meet at its edge with people within, Big Jim sends Randolph and a detachment of police to take back control of his former meth operation from Phil Chef Bushy, who is stopping Rennie from covering up the operations as well as hoarding the more than 400 tanks of propane stored there. Chef wants it all, explaining, I need it to cook. Big Jim underestimates Chef's capacity for self-defense and meth-induced paranoia. He, as well as the now-ostracized head selectman Andy Sanders, whom Chef has introduced to meth use, defend themselves and the meth lab with assault rifles. Many are killed in the ensuing gunfight, and Chef, who is mortally wounded, detonates a plastic explosive device he has placed in the meth production facility. The ensuing explosion, combined with the propane and meth-making chemicals, unleashes a toxic firestorm large enough to incinerate most of the town. More than a thousand of the town's residents are quickly incinerated on national television, leaving alive just over 300 individuals who gradually die out as the toxic air ensues to restrict their breathing. Among the survivors are the 28 refugees at the abandoned farm, an orphaned farm boy hiding in a potato cellar, and Big Jim and his informal aide, Carter Thibodeau, in the town's fallout shelter. Big Jim and Thibodeau, or Thibodeau, uh, eventually turn on each other over the limited oxygen supply, and Big Jim is worried that Thibodeau might act as a witness against him if they survive. Big Jim stabs and disembowels Thibodeau, only to die several hours later when hallucinations of the dead send him fleeing into the now-toxic environment outside. 
The survivors at the barn begin to slowly asphyxiate, despite efforts by the army to force clean air through the walls of the dome. Barbie and Julia go to the control, vice, control device to beg their captors to release them. Julia is able to make contact with a single female leatherhead, no longer accompanied by her friends and thus not caught up in their peer pressure. After repeatedly expressing that they are real sentient beings with real little lives, and by sharing a painful childhood incident with the adolescent alien, Julia convinces the leatherheads to have pity on them. The dome rises slowly and vanishes, allowing the toxic air to dissipate and finally freeing what is left of the town of Chester's Mill. Analysis Already, what's fun about the novel is that it opens with a map of Chester's Mill, not only giving us the physical locations of what we'll come to know, but also places this town within the geography of King's other main towns, including TR-90 and Castle Rock. The map gives way to a list of our characters, something that King has never done before, and the inclusion is a fun one. It, pardon my pun, sets the stage for the events to come. Part 1, The Airplane and the Woodchuck. The opening line and subsequent description of Claudette Sanders taking a flying lesson both allows an opportunity to begin to describe the town as well as set up the punchline of the plane smashing into the dome. But even before it happens, by the second page, King tips off the reader that something bad is about to happen when he writes that they'll have another 45 seconds to live. Whatever is about to happen has just happened to a woodchuck cut in two by the dome. And though it might seem odd for King to switch perspectives to the woodchuck, it's an important perspective because in the eyes of the alien beings responsible for the dome, there's no difference between the human flying above or the woodchuck scurrying below. Barbie. We now meet our hero named Barbie, who King introduces as just having been beat up. And through deft usage of internal monologue that doesn't hammer home the exposition, we learn that Barbie is a heterosexual male who had been working as a short-order cook in a local breakfast place. One of the reasons this book made waves that it did when it was released is because of three things. One, King follows the premise to increasingly unpredictable conclusions. Two, the various descriptions of the dome itself. Three, the buildup of the appearance of the dome. I'll talk about uh, the first one as we head throughout the rest of the novel, but in the meantime, let's look at two and three. First, rather than providing one perspective to show the appearance of the dome, he continues to give multiple perspectives which highlight the confusion that comes with the impossibility of what people and woodchucks are seeing. King doesn't provide an omniscient description of how the dome came down. Instead, he presents the observations of the survivors who are able to deduce that they are now trapped. And within these trappings, King provides incredible detail, as he does when Barbie survives being crushed by the falling plane that had smashed into the dome. But none of this was what had caught his eye and stopped his breath. The disaster rose was now was gone now. But there was still fire in the sky. Burning fuel, certainly. But but it was running down the air in a thin sheet. Beyond it and through it, Barbie could see the main countryside, still peaceful, not yet reacting, but in motion nevertheless. Shimmering like the air over an incinerator or a burning barrel. It was as if someone had splashed gasoline over a pane of glass and then set it alight. 
almost hypnotize. That's what it felt like anyway. Barbie started walking back towards the scene of the crash. Junior and Angie. Here we meet Junior, one of our villains of the piece, the wild card, who we will learn suffers from headaches and burns anthills for fun. It tells us pretty much everything that we need to know about him. That he wishes ill on everyone around him. He despises hearing the voice of his mother. He wants the plane to crash on top of his father's car dealership. And he sets out to make himself feel better by hurting Angie McCain. The murder of Angie McCain is just as important as the dome itself. While Junior may come across as over the top in his insanity and villainy, it's kind of the point. After all, the dome itself is just a way for the aliens to localize their entertainment, so it's fitting that the first scene that plays out under the dome television screen is a brutal murder. The heightened soap opera that follows is in service to the themes that King is making about entertainment. Highways and Byways King continues to show the effect of the dome coming down in gruesome little ways, a broken neck here, an amputated hand there, before checking back in with Barbie and motorist Sea Dogs, who is on the other side of the dome. After another chaotic incident, the two have an iconic moment of reaching for each other only to find the dome in between. Already, King is giving the dome, um, not personality, but I mean, he's making it incredibly textured, literally. There's a path of dead birds that mark its territory. The smudge higher up where the plane had hit. The continual descriptions of the dome are going to be one of the book's highlights. Barbie, meanwhile, demonstrates the Stu Redman cool under pressure trait. Just as Stu had told Hap to shut the pumps off, the pumps off at the approaching car in the stand, Barbie tells Sea Dogs he's going to have to contact the National Guard to issue a no-fly zone over Chester's Mill. A lot of dead birds. We are introduced to Howard Perkins, the sheriff, by all accounts a good man, but the introduction is to fatten him up for the slaughter, as King drops an ominous line that his wife will always remember the touch in the sunshine, and the next time she saw him after he leaves, he was dead. Meanwhile, King continues to detail the increasing car crashes to near hilarious effect. Barbie and Sea Dogs, known really as Paul Gendron, explore the perimeter of the dome, and allow King to explore the physical features like I had mentioned earlier. In this case, a stream is cut in half, and we learn that some of the water can leak through. Cluster Mug Here we're introduced to Big Jim Rennie, a character teased throughout the perspective of the other characters in town. And King wastes no time in presenting us to Big Jim. He's, an un he's a ridiculously unlikable character, arriving at the scene of the plane crash and taking over without knowing what's occurring and dismissing what others have already deduced. After a power struggle with Chief Perkins, Perkins touches the dome, causing his pacemaker to explode, effectively giving Big Jim the opportunity to take control for the sake of having control. King then introduces us to Rusty, the physician's assistant, to the oft-mentioned Doc Haskell, and Benny Drake, skateboarding child. Now, for someone who captured the truth of childhood in stories such as The Shining, The Body, Firestarter, The Talisman, It, Dreamcatcher, Low Men in Yellow Coats, it's astounding how off the mark he is in this scene with this skateboarding character who spits out the following lines. Power's back on, dude! And when he's told it's a generator, he replies, Old school! Stat, baby! Cold blue! 
When asked about his skateboarding skills, he replied, Only half, but it was toxic. Then, I'm like, freely radical, cheeky little bugger. So, like I said, I mean, that's, like, I read that and I, 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 I really groaned. Because uh, King's better than that. We then learn a little bit more about Barbie. Specifically that he's Captain Dale Barbara. And his involvement in the army should raise the question of whether or not he has anything to do with this. We all support the team. So less than 100 pages in, just as it sinks into our characters that they are isolated in their predicament, King begins to open up the rest of the world. From within their recent prison, the citizens of Chester's Mill watch as Anderson Cooper report about the dome and is pushed back by the military. This is raising the stakes, who's keeping it grounded um, in a real recognizable reality. Barbie heads back to work as a short-order cook, and after hours, he and the owner, Rose, and fellow cook, Anson, discuss the realities of the situation and what it means for the restaurant. Barbie looks like a leader, a man of logic and discipline, realizing that they'll have to conserve the propane due to the fact that they have no idea how long the dome will last. Junior continues his murderous streak by killing Dodie Sanders, who comes checking in on Angie. The good of the town, the good of the people. We meet Andy Sanders, first selectman, and through his perspective, we get the relationship between he and Big Jim, and he and the town. And though he's for Chester's mill and appears altruistic, King slips in a little detail about the possibility of going to jail for something that he's involved with. So King is making sure that he's keeping these mysteries going. King then provides a little bit of perspective of the outside world through the conversation between Julius Shumway and Colonel Cox. The military is presented as helpful but realistic, and there's a hint of danger with the implication that all of the mill's residents will die. It's here during this conversation where we first learn through the characters that it's a dome, which changes the game for the Chester's Mill residents. Big Jim then holds an underground selectman's meeting in which he basically moves for absolute power and the others are just too dumb to see it. They underestimate the depths of hatred and anger within this man, who was able to form a band of his goons under the belief that they'll be operating as deputies. One goon in particular should throw up warning bells, and that's Murderous Jr. With less than 200 pages in, King is establishing that the threat is not the dome itself. It's what the dome has allowed to happen. Prayers. Barbie and Julia arrive at the edge of town to have their conversation with Colonel Cox. It's a strange choice on King's part to have them be required to drive to the edge of town to have a conversation with a man on the other end of a telephone. It'd be one thing if he was meeting them on the other side of the dome. Uh, but anyway, uh, during the scene where, where King starts to lay down the rules of the dome, how high it is, the fact that it isn't a dome but a complete capsule, the fact that it's not a natural phenomenon, it wasn't cooked up by the U.S., that air can pass through it, a little bit of water but not particulates. This is where things start to get interesting and shows that King has spent a lot of time thinking about what this dome means for our town. It isn't just that the town is sealed off. The fact that bits and particles are going to begin to stick to the dome and the weather inside is going to change. These are incredible little wrinkles um, to this story that uh, I personally hadn't thought of when I first sat down to read it. 
And from a plot and character standpoint, we learn a little bit more about Barbie. He's a decorated ex-soldier whose specialty has been hunting down Al-Qaeda bombs. And this ties in nicely with the theory that the dome might be operating under the power of a generator located somewhere within the town. From there, King whisks us away throughout the various town members living up to the um, chapter title of Prayers, checking in on Piper Libby and Lester Coggins, one priest who has lost her belief in God and the other who believes that God is literally speaking to him. And then the widow Perkins, who asks for a visit from her recently deceased husband, which comes true when she finds a computer folder in which Duke's files spell out the nefarious truths around Big Jim Rennie misappropriation of funds and the manufacture and sale of illegal drugs. Now, things just got more interesting. Things get even more interesting when we check back in with Rusty, who returns home to find one of Dean Koontz's golden retrievers who has inserted herself into a Stephen King novel. The retriever, Audrey, drags Rusty and his wife, Linda, into their daughter's room to discover that one of their children, Janelle, is in the midst of a seizure. Along with the seizure comes dire warnings about Halloween. King has trapped our characters within the dome and has now established a ticking time bomb. Madness, blindness, astonishment of the heart. We then meet Joe McClatchy, the latest of a long line of children characters, the types of which King has been writing about for years. This character is quickly established in a handful of pages, but that's all that it takes for him to be a larger-than-life figure that makes you want to read more about him. King more than makes up for the atrocious skateboarder dialogue earlier in the novel with this stylized jack-of-all-trades savant. After the deputies are sworn in, we see how bad things are going to get. On his first beat as a cop, Junior Bully is an alcoholic suffering from withdrawals. It's a pretty sad sight to see. It's an ugly moment showing that we can hate Junior even more than we already did, and he's killed two people. Things escalate pretty quickly with a physical assault on Sammy the Drunk, and within the militant police in play, is picking up the threads he'd left dangling loosely in the concluding pages of The Stand after Stu returns to Boulder to find that the people have placed Hugh Petrella in power. And this character, spoken of but never seen, begins to create a dangerous controlling police force. This, everything that happens under the dome, is the logical continuation of that idea. This is not as bad as it gets. The previous chapter ended with the foolish actions of Rory Dinsmore, who blew his own face off. What follows is pure chaos, as the overeager deputies begin to abuse their power and Rusty does what he can for Rory, who begins to utter warnings about Halloween. King knows that the premise of the dome will not be enough. <clears throat> he needs to build in more mysteries, and the ticking time bomb of the fire at Halloween is a perfect hook to keep readers engaged. After the demonstration of police brutality by the deputies, King throws a wrench in the works with the fact that the president is invoking martial law and placing Barbie in charge. Immediately, our tensions rise because it shows how much the outside does not understand of the helplessness of Barbie in this situation. Barbie meets up with Mrs. Perkins, the late sheriff's wife, for advice on how to navigate the politics of the town now that he's been promoted. And King continues to lay on the dome imagery. On page 251, we have the declining sun wasn't a ball. It was a huge red bow tie shape with a burning circular center. The western sky was smeared as if with a thin film of blood that shaded to orange as it climbed. The horizon was almost invisible through that blurry glare. 
<laughs> that's that's just pretty awesome. I mean, the ways that King finds to describe life um, the other side of the world through the dome. I mean, it, very, very inventive. Nyuk, nyuk, nyuk. We get to learn more about what Debbie had been up to. From Brenda, we'd learned that... Um, sorry, not Debbie. Uh, we learn more about what Rennie has been up to. From Brenda, we learned that he had been manufacturing drugs. And here we learn specifically that's meth. Barbie, Brenda, Dale, and Andy have their meeting in which Barbie reveals his newfound position in the town ordered by the president and it becomes a mental cat and mouse game with Rennie reading between the lines within the message and establishing the upcoming conflict when Big Jim becomes really Big Jim and declares himself overlord of Chester's Mill. The fallout continues in which we see Big Jim's ambitions and threat to his power begin to take center stage. He openly defies the president's orders, dismisses the president's authority, and blackmails Andrea by using her pill addiction to his advantage. Things go very bad, sorry, things go very bad very quickly with the drunken deputies raping a resident. It's an awful scene by design and unfolds the dread so quickly we feel as we are there that this is happening to us. And things spiral out of control even worse. Reverend Coggins confronts Big Jim, believing the dome has been placed there due to the sin committed by the town leaders. Rennie, his hubris growing so large he not only places himself higher than the present, but now God himself, proceeds to murder the reverend with the help of his sociopathic son. Missile strike imminent. We continue checking in on various aspects of the town, the Hitler Youth deputies continuing to antagonize members of the community. A check-in at the meth factory, and selectman Andrea approaches Rusty, knowing that she needs to kick her habit to help combat the growing power base of Big Jim Rennie. Big Jim, meanwhile, shows up at Little Bitch Road to engage in a power play with Barbie. Barbie, Joe McClatchy, and Cox have agreed to record the missile strike from within the dome using a MacBook. Rennie, however, tries to put the kibosh on it for no other reason than because he's obsessed with being in charge, openly defying Barbie's orders and the orders of the Marines on the other side of the dome. There's a great power play by Barbie where he uses the feed to his advantage, showing Rennie for who he is, which is great for the moment, but only serves to enrage Rennie further. King gives us a great perspective of the missile strike, from the fighter pilot to the residents of New England towns watching in concern as the jet flies low and as the missile flies overhead. The chapter concludes with the missile exploding, but, unsurprisingly, it's unable to break the dome. In the frame, King continues to escalate the situation with Rusty investigating the missing propane, a junior framing Barbie, Brenda gathering public support, Piper forcing Sammy to admit that the deputies raped her, and Linda discovering that her other daughter is now having seizures, mumbling about pink stars falling in lines. This is followed up immediately by the Massachusetts children who are stuck in town without their mother, who began to expand upon the pink stars warning, talking about Chef. Now we know that the meth is somehow involved. King has been creating a ticking time bomb, and with the missing propane, it's not hard to imagine that the figurative time bomb is becoming an actual time bomb. The chapter ends with Rusty and Barbie meeting, which is great as we've been watching the growing power play, the power of the bad guys. Now, the literal good guys have joined together. Pink stars falling. I should mention that my only positive memory from the TV show was of the convulsing children watching themselves and muttering about the pink stars falling. 
Piper's rage gets the best of her, and she rages against the drunken deputies. And King includes one of my favorite tried-and-true accusation beats. Piper accuses them of rape, and the rapists stupidly announce that they weren't anywhere near Sammy's house, unknowingly providing the name of the victim. Unfortunately, uh, Piper's rage gets the best of her, and she's shoved down the stairs. Her dog is shot for it. Rennie is confronted by Rusty, and the chef has a vision of Halloween fires. During this, to make things even more tense, King slips in the little tidbit that there's no more dew on the ground, meaning there's a lack of moisture on the ground, which will make the upcoming fire burn all the better. But the fire itself is only the end of a prophecy, and in order for a prophecy to be credible, other parts need to come true first, which is where the talk of pink stars falling in lines comes into play. Because of the particulates collecting on the dome, it creates an effect which makes the shooting stars overhead look like pink stars falling in lines, which is observed to be the end of the world by the townsfolk looking up. And it works on a few levels. One, from a character and plot point, it legitimizes the prophetic words of the children. Two, from a storytelling standpoint, it creates a mystery and a sense of impending doom. And more importantly, it shows just how cut off Chester's Mill is. Now that they're domed up, superstition has taken hold. And like ancient civilizations of old, the natural phenomena around us is cause for end-of-the-world scenarios. It concludes with another discussion about the origins of the dome, with the prospect of it being the result of extraterrestrial involvement being more of a possibility than before. Feeling it. It's writing like this that makes Stephen King who he is. He wraps up a thesis about power and wealth with an extended look at girls' basketball. This, of course, is presented to us through Big Jim Rennie, and the fact that he envisions power through the lens of high school sports shows how limited he actually sees the world. Another genius way that King, that King builds Big Jim, Big Jim Rennie's character traits. So I'm going to start to read from uh, page 448. In the wider world, he might have made more money, but the wealth was a short beer of existence. Power was champagne. Running the mill was good on ordinary days, but in times of crisis, it was better than good. In times like that, you could fly on the pure wings of intuition, knowing that you couldn't screw up, absolutely couldn't. You could read the defense even before the defense had coalesced, and you scored every time you got the ball. You were feeling it, and there was no better time for that to happen than in a championship game. This was his championship game, and everything was breaking his way. He had the sense, the total belief, that nothing could go wrong during this magical passage. Even things that seemed wrong would become opportunities rather than stumbling blocks, like Hannah's description, desperation, half-court shot that had brought the whole Dairy Civic Center to its feet, the Mills fans cheering, the Castle Rockers raving in disbelief. Feeling it, which is why he wasn't tired, even though he should have been exhausted, which is why he wasn't worried about Junior in spite of Junior's reticence and pale watchfulness, which was why he wasn't worried about Dale Barbara and Barbara's troublesome coterie of friends, most notably the newspaper bitch, which was why when Peter Randolph and Andy Sanders looked at him dumbfounded, Bing Jim only smiled. He could afford to, I'm sorry, he could afford to smile. He was feeling it. Throughout the town, the characters begin drawing their plans together. 
Barbie realizing that the Rennies are about to move against him, and in preparation, he creates an insurance policy in the form of Duke's investigation against Big Jim. Then things go from worse to dangerous. The all-fragile civility of life within the dome shatters as a riot breaks out at the supermarket, a riot carefully orchestrated by Big Jim Rennie to ensure his control over the town. Things get even worse as Brenda does not listen to Barbie, Barbie and heads out to confront Big Jim herself, believing that her threat to him will be enough. Of course she's wrong. And after confronting him, he quickly kills her, throwing the fate of Barbie and the town into unknown jeopardy. At this point, the novel is like a small town Game of Thrones, with a war over the top spot in town, each side with their allegiances and power plays, which may or may not work out. In the jug. Hey, here's a neat little coincidence. Or an example of Stephen King's psychic abilities. Uh, Joe McClatchy thinks about how much he likes the acclaimed comic book writer Brian K. Vaughn, author of Why the Last Man, Ex Machina, Doctor Strange, The Oath, Presently Saga, like I've talked about already. The reason that I'm bringing this up and the reason this is so neat is because, like I said earlier, Brian K. Vaughn will go on to become the executive producer of the CBS adaptation for Under the Dome. We're halfway through the book, and here's where it really starts to rev up. The Gestapo come for Barbie, who is now working at the hospital. Barbie handles himself well, knowing that he'll be used as a scapegoat, and tries to rationalize the situation with anyone that will listen, even while Jim stokes the fire for his own purposes. Meanwhile, Joe and his friends head off with a Geiger counter to discover the transmitter responsible for the dome. The fact that it's three kids makes it so fun, and it's easy to imagine an alternate version of the story where these three were the stars. Salt. Just because the bad guys are winning at the moment doesn't mean that the good guys are giving up. Shumway meets with the officers, Linda and Jackie, and Piper has another talk with the god that she doesn't believe in, in which King interweaves God's creation with auto mechanics. On page 563. But heaven's not the point, she resumed. The point right now is trying to figure out how much of what happened to Clover was my fault. I know I have to own some of it. My temper got the best of me. Again, my religious teaching suggests you put that short fuse in me to begin with, and it's my job to deal with it, but I hate that idea. I don't completely reject it, but I hate it. Makes me think of how... When you take your car to get repaired, the guys in the shop always find a way to blame the problem on you. You ran it too much. You didn't run it enough. You forgot to release the handbrake. You forgot to close your windows and the rain got in the wiring. And you know what's worse? If you're not there, I can't shove even a little blame off on you. What does that leave? Effing genetics. Um, you know, and she continues. It's just, I, I just love taking that huge concept and tying it to something so everyday that we can all relate to. Um, and that's just why, why Stephen King excels at what he does. The players gather together to discuss Barbie's innocence while in the jail cell. While being interrogated, Barbie realizes that between Junior's inflamed eye and garbled speech, something's very wrong with him. Junior firebombs the newspaper office while framing Barbie's supporters, which is frustrating. All of this is frustrating, but in a good way. All it takes is a second to think about how illogical this is. The newspaper has been pro-Barbie, so why would supporters burn it to the ground? It clearly looks like a frame job, but I think that's what's so maddening. 
it's just a little too close to real life. When we have people in power or who are seeking it that blatantly lie, and these lies are gobbled up by so many people as truth. It's a terrifying aspect of society that's more frightening than any dome. Ashes. As the newspaper office burns, Rusty examines the dead bodies that the officers claim were killed by Barbie, and during the examination, he discovers the pattern on Lester Coggins that matches Big Jim's gold-plated baseball. It's a great moment for our heroes, but the town is so firmly in the grips of Big Jim Rennie that it almost doesn't matter that they have evidence. I mean, what's evidence? Who cares about evidence? The tide feels like it's beginning to turn, with Julia joining with Andrea, who has finished going through withdrawals, and, and they plan to break Barbie out of prison. Play that dead band song. Cox steps in, verbally anyway, to inform Rennie that they're releasing as much information as they can about him to the press to paint him in a bad light. And during the conversation, King connects his universe to Lee Childs when Cox name drops Jack Reacher, which is really fun. There's about 400 pages left, and we can start to see the end approaching. Jackie, with Piper, realizes that they have to openly rebel against Big Jim. Rusty, Romy, and the kids head towards the dome generator, and Junior begins to fall apart. His eye bulging, uh, one side of his face freezing, his speech slurred. It all feels like we are entering the, the point of no return. And then the end game begins to reveal itself when Rusty touches the dome generator. Then, in that darkness, faces arose, only they weren't human faces, and later he would not be so sure that they were faces at all. They were geometric solids that seemed to be padded in leather. The only parts of them that looked even vaguely human were diamond shapes on the sides. They could have been ears. The heads, if they were heads, turned to each other, either in discussion or something that could have been mistaken for it. He thought he heard laughter. He thought he sensed excitement. He pictured children in the play yard at E Street Grammar, his girls perhaps, and their friend Deanna Carver exchanging snacks and secrets at recess. All this happened in a space of seconds, surely no more than four or five, then it was gone. The shock dissipated as suddenly and completely as it did when people first touched the surface of the dome. As quickly as his lightheadedness and the accompanying vision of the dummy in the crooked top hat. He was just kneeling at the top of the ridge overlooking the town and sweltering in his leaden accessories. Yet the image of those leather heads remained, leaning together and laughing in obscenely child sorry, leaning together and laughing in obscenely childish conspiracy. The others are down there watching me. Wave, show them you're all right. Um so here we go. We've speculated for over 700 pages, but as the confirmation begins here, as Rusty gets the sense of the alien beings who are causing this. I'm sorry, I'm getting a ton of text messages right now. And because this signals the beginning of the end, what better way to cement it than by bringing it back to the beginning as another plane crashed into the dome? This time a passenger flight. It's just another reminder to show how set off from the rest of the world the citizens are and wants to show how desperate Big Jim is. He acknowledges what everyone has been thinking, that he wants the dome to stay intact. Busted. It may not help, but it's great that he tries. Cox gives a press conference in which he answers questions to paint Barbie as the good guy and Big Jim as the villain. And speaking of the villain, 
It's maddening that everyone in the book keeps making the same mistake, underestimating Big Jim and giving him ultimatums while alone. Here, it's Rusty confronting him about Lester's murder while two of Rennie's goons are hiding right behind, listening to the entire thing. Our good guys plan to bust Rusty and Barbie out of jail while the real hero of the book, Horace the Corgi, finally managed to unearth the lost envelope that Brenda had given to Andrea, who had forgotten due to her withdrawals. Blood everywhere. God damn it. Everyone is so frustrating in this novel. It looks like Andrea is going to be the next person to go at Rennie alone. After she read the Vader file, she gets her gun ready. She's going to fall in the same trap as everybody else. Meanwhile, Junior's falling apart. His mind is rotting away. His body is failing. He continues to be the wild card, while Big Jim gathers his men to take the propane from the meth cooks at the radio station. King takes a break from building the crescendo to give us a quiet moment that's as resonant as anything else in the book. And it's a small moment between Ali and the army private on the other side of the dome. Though they can't touch and are separated by the dome, the private does what he can to console the grieving child, providing us with the iconic image of hands pressed against each other but not touching because of the dome between. Big Jim then begins his hypnosis of the town, which is cut short by Andrea, who waves the papers around. The papers which were so important for so long revealed to be useless in the end. It doesn't matter what the truth is. The town is too far gone, and Andrea chooses this moment to attempt the assassination of Big Jim, which ends with the overzealous cops shooting innocents. There's zero release from the tension, even when the meeting is over. Junior descends the PD stairs to execute Barbie, and there's such an unknown quality um, that's hard to sit through. Junior then has a quick, pitiful end shot in the back by Jackie. Ants. Here, the gang realizes that the generator is not protected, that what they think is danger is really just a smoke and mirrors show. As we near the end, King provides two sex scenes, which I need to discuss a little. Neither are too explicit or graphic. The first is a scene between Barbie and Julia, two survivors who have been each other's most trusted ally throughout the whole mess, and the scene is built towards the action rather than focusing on a detailed description of the act itself. The second scene is another rape, which is now the second one of the book, not including Junior's necrophilia, which thankfully we never witness. Here's the deal. This rape, which doesn't feature any penetration, thankfully, um, comes about 100 pages from the end and really only serves to show how monstrous the Chester's Mill police force is. The problem is we've already seen one woman brutally raped by the police force in order to show how monstrous it is. This scene, the violation of Linda Everett, is thoroughly unnecessary because it's redundant. Yeah, it makes us hate uh, Carter Thibodeau that much more, but like I said, why bother? It's as if King realized that with Junior out of the way, he needed to create Junior 2.0, another terrible son of Big Jim Rennie. Yeah, I mean, I guess it works on that level, but it's not enough to outweigh how unnecessary it is to have this poor woman, a good person, a mother, molested simply to prove a point long since proven. Halloween comes early. Ollie Dinsmore returns to give us another iconic image of the juxtaposition of burying his father's body as the pilgrimage to the dome commences. One image symbolizing families coming together and the other of families parting ways forever. So much of the novel has been on finding different ways to show the separation of life within the dome and outside the dome. 
towards the uh, end of the novel, he decides to give a beautiful and blunt view as Dome Day occurs, a televised event that is summed up by Wolf Blitzer, who says, I have never seen such longing on human faces. And then King continues um, by writing, little by little, they sort themselves out, and the pool TV cameras see it all. They observe the townspeople and the visitors pressing their hands together with the invisible barrier between. They watch them try to kiss. They examine men and women weeping as they look into each other's eyes. They note the ones who faint, both inside the dome and out, those who fall to their knees and pray, facing each other with folded hands raised. They record the man on the outside who begins hammering his fists against the thing keeping him from his pregnant wife, hammering until his skin splits and his blood beads on thin air. They peer at the old woman, trying to trace her fingers, the tips pressed white and smooth against the unseen surface between them over her sobbing granddaughter's forehead. The press helicopter takes off again and hovers, sending back images of a double human snake spread over a quarter of a mile. On the mountain side, the leaves flame and dance with late October color. On Chester's mill side, they hang limp. Behind the townsfolk, on the road, in the fields, caught in the bushes, are dozens of discarded signs. At this moment of reunion, or almost reunion, politics and protests have been forgotten. Candy Crowley says, Wolf, this is without a doubt the saddest, strangest event I've ever witnessed in all my years of reporting. Yet human beings are nothing if not adaptable, and little by little the excitement and the strangeness begins to wear off. The reunions merge into the actual visiting, and behind the visitors, those who have been overwhelmed on both sides of the dome are being carried away. On the mill side, there's no, there's no Red Cross tent to drag them to. The police put them in such scant shade as the police cars allow, waiting for Pamela Chen and the school bus. In the police station, the WCIK raiding party is watching them with the same silent fascination as everyone else. Randolph lets them. There is little time yet. He checks off the names on his clipboard, then motions to Freddie Denton to join him on the front steps. And it just continues. Um, but I just think that that is a great description of what Dome Day looks like. As the visitors spend time with their trapped loved ones, the real cluster mug takes place at the radio station. With the police force, King showcases buffoonery with a mixture of comedy and tragedy. They're so bumbling, it's almost not funny. Their deaths certainly aren't. They don't follow Rennie's orders. They forget the Kevlar vests. They then remember the Kevlar vests, and they choose not to go get them. Everything about the police's raid on the meth lab is purposefully dumb. And then the end begins on page 981, when Chef and Andy explode the lab and the propane tanks along with it. Like many of King's books, it will end in fire. But this is the worst of all King fires, because this, by far, is the most dangerous. Barbie has one moment of clear premonitory terror. One moment when the worst is still ahead. Then, four miles distant, a brilliant white spark flicks the hazy sky, like a stroke of lightning that goes up instead of down. A moment later, a titanic explosion hammers a hole straight through the center of the day. A red ball of fire blots out first the WCIK tower, then the trees behind it, then the whole horizon as it spreads north and south. 
The people on Black Ridge scream, but are unable to hear themselves over the vast grinding, building roar as 80 pounds of plastic explosive and 10,000 gallons of propane undergo an explosive change. They cover their eyes and stagger backwards, stepping on their sandwiches and spilling their drinks. Thurston snatches Alice and Aiden into his arms, and for a moment, Barbie sees his face against the blackening sky, the long and terrified face of a man observing the literal gates of hell swing open and the ocean of fire waiting just beyond. We have to get back to the farmhouse, Barbie yells. Julia is clinging to him, crying. Behind her is Joe McClatchy, trying to help his weeping mother to her feet. These people are going nowhere, at least for a while. To the southwest, where most of Little Bitch Road will, within the next three minutes, cease to exist, the yellowy-blue sky is turning black, and Barbie has time to think with perfect calm. Now we're under the magnifying glass. The blast shatters every window in the mostly deserted downtown, sends shutters soaring, knocks telephone poles askew, rips doors from their hinges, flattens mailboxes. Up and down Main Street, car alarms go off. To Big Jim Rennie and Carter Thibodeau, it feels as if the conference room has been struck by an earthquake. The TV is still on. Wolf Blitzer is asking, in tones of real alarm, What's that? Anderson Cooper, Candy Crowley, Chad Myers... Soledad O'Brien, does anybody know what the hell that was? What's going on? At the Dome, America's newest TV stars are looking around, showing the cameras only their backs as they shield their eyes and stare towards town. One camera pans up briefly for a moment, disclosing a monstrous column of black smoke and swirling debris on the horizon. Carter gets to his feet. Big Jim grabs his wrist. One quick look, Big Jim says to see how bad it is then get your butt back down here we may need have to go we may need to go to the fallout shelter okay carter races up the stairs broken glass from the mostly vaporized front doors crunches beneath his boots as he runs down the hall what he sees when he comes out on the steps is so beyond anything he has ever imagined that it tumbles him back into childhood again and for a moment he freezes where he is thinking it's like the biggest awfulest thunderstorm anyone ever saw only worse the sky to the west is a red-orange inferno surrounded by billowing clouds of deepest ebony. The air is already stenchy with exploded LP. The sound is like the roar of a dozen steel mills running at full blast. Directly above him, the sky is dark with fleeing birds. The sight of them, birds with nowhere to go, is what breaks Carter's paralysis. That, and the rising wind he feels against his face. There has been no wind in Chester's Mill for six days, and this one is both hot and vile, stinking of gas and vaporized wood. And it goes on, it, but I mean, it's just amazing. It's just, just so, so, so intense. Um, the fire behaves like a living thing. A voracious animal that raises the town in a span of mere minutes. Once it consumes everything it can, it disappears, leaving poison in its wake. And our heroes huddle up against the dome to suck in the air, barely being pushed through the dome by high-powered fans on the other side. Survivors. King gives us the grimmest view of any of his books to date. If life within the dome is the world itself... And this is a decimation even greater than that of the stand. Only 397 of the mill's 2,000 residents survived the fire, most of them in the northeast quadrant of town. By the time night falls, 
rendering the smudged darkness inside the dome complete, there will be 106. When the sun comes up on Saturday morning, shining weakly through the only part of the dome not charred completely black, the population of Chester's Mill is just 32. With the end approaching, the survivors navigate the blame to be had. Though it was the aliens who placed the dome, it was the citizens who brought ruin upon themselves. And while it might have been Big Jim Rennie, who voted him in the first place? The narrative gets sectioned off in three parts. The story of Ollie Dinsmore, the last remaining member of a family of suicides who refuses to die. The last stand of Big Jim Rennie hiding out in the bunker and the survivors sucking air through the dome. Big Jim and his adopted son Carter square off with Rennie as um, Rennie gets the upper hand because Carter makes the same mistake that everyone else made in this book. He underestimated Big Jim. The survivors start falling one by one. Um, and maybe the most heartbreaking of them all is Audrey the Golden Retriever. Which is, it's always hard to read when the dog dies. And on page 1000, wow, 33, um, King gives us um, probably the thesis, like I said, of, of the novel. Uh, Piper Libby joined them. And they're talking, she's talking about uh, the aliens. She was flushed and her hair was sticking to her cheeks. They're kids, she said. How do you know? Barbie asked. I just do. She smiled. They're the God I stopped believing in about three years ago. God turned out to be a bunch of bad little kids playing interstellar Xbox. Isn't that funny? Her smile widened and then she burst into tears. And then we get the much anticipated death of Big Jim Rennie. Now, when I first read it, I was disappointed that he wasn't beaten by the forces of good. I wanted our good guys to have that satisfaction. However, I think that's more fitting that he's undone by his own greed and thoughtlessness. Unsurprisingly, it's his heart that finally gives out the organ that had functioned like a ticking time bomb. Then King goes one step extra and has Rennie's final moments spent in torment by the haunting of those dead by his hand and by Junior. It's a great Stephen King moment, not out of the blue either, as Horace the Corgi had heard the dead voice of Brenda Perkins. Wear it home, it'll look like a dress. Julia manages to connect with one of the aliens in a poignant scene in which she's able to convince it of her reality, and as a result, the alien raises the dome. King delivers another thesis statement with the exploration, explanation of how it worked. He put his hand over hers. Were they, were they sorry? There was only one, Julia said. If there had been more, it never would have worked. I don't think you can fight a crowd that's bent on cruelty. And no, no, she wasn't sorry. She took pity, but she wasn't sorry. That's it. That's it. The dome is lifted. They learn to live. And hopefully the events of the dome have a long-lasting positive impact on the world. That's that's it for the, uh, the book itself. Now, before I get to the Easter eggs and the Stephen King-isms, let's just talk about the fact here that we are the aliens. Can we agree on that? All right. I mean, think about this. Uh, I mean, for years, we have read and we've watched Stephen King characters be gruesomely murdered and placed through horrible conditions simply for our entertainment. 
Well, in Under the Dome, the characters from a Stephen King novel finally get a chance to address it with the audience that demands their blood. Yes, King repurposes us as aliens, sitting back and watching this story unfold, but make no mistake, those incomprehensible alien entities would look like that they, they look like just you and I if we were to look in the mirror. I mean, just look what happens when Julia visits them. The alien children don't believe what they're seeing and call her make-believe. I mean, this is what we would say if one of King's characters came out of a book to tell us to stop reading it. So I just think that is a fun way for King to comment on on his uh, on his creation. Okay. Now, there's 100-something episodes I've been doing this for... Um, since 2014, uh, when this comes out, I believe it will be 2016, actually. So I've been doing it for a while, and I've managed to avoid talking about certain things for um, out of respect of the, the, the varied and disparate beliefs of listeners out there. I haven't, I've, I put in my opinions on Stephen King's works, but I have steered clear of religion and I've steered clear of politics. But I have to talk about politics, guys. I need to talk about it because Stephen King is making a pretty bold statement on the nature of politics. And as I record this on Christmas Eve of 2015, we are living in a highly politicized world. Um, I think that we need to talk about it a little bit. Because though it can be easily seen as an examination of life under a dome, this novel is a scathing political indictment of the early 2000s America and is to Bush's presidency what the Scarlet Letter was to McCarthy's modern witch trials. Throughout the novel, though published during the earliest days of Obama's presidency, Bush's reign is still fresh in the minds of both the reader and especially the writer who criticizes the former president's handling of Iraq on multiple occasions throughout the course of this story. And if this is a critique of the president during the time when the book was published, is he also critiquing our foolishness? I mean, just look at the scene in which Rory decides to shoot at the dome, thinking that the bullet will do what the plane and the cars couldn't, burst through the dome itself. Not only is he moronic for this action, but the condemnation continues with Lester Coggins, who believes that the boy's blinding as the bullet ricochets back and bursts his eyeballs is a sign from God. Or how about the complete misunderstanding of how to deal with the dome itself? The president orders that Barbie is placed in charge, as if the order itself will be enough to rectify the situation of life within the dome. And is this an allegory for military decisions made on foreign soil, an ocean away? On page 229, he gives us, And if it works, feel free to have the federal agency of your choice come and arrest me. But if we stay cut off, who in here is going to listen to me? Get it through your head. This town has seceded, not just from America, but from the whole world. There's nothing we can do about it and nothing you can do about it either. You know, it's just that there is is Barbie saying these thoughts to Cox. Um, okay, and then we got Big Jim. So Big Jim is in the epicenter of the political critique, um, as Julia summarizes on page three hundred and 
49. Julia sighed and ran her hands through her hair. Jim Rennie thinks if he just keeps all the control in his own hands, things will eventually come right side up. For him and his friends, at least. He's the worst kind of politician. Selfish. Too egocentric to realize he's way out of his league and a coward underneath that bluff can-do exterior of his. When things get bad enough, he'll send this town to the devil if he thinks he can save himself by doing so. A cowardly leader is the most dangerous of men. You're the one that should be running this show. Mm. That's intense. Um, like the Bush years, Big Jim takes advantage of fear and uses it to keep his power base. When the town sees pink stars falling, Big Jim sees the fear in their eyes and knows he can exploit it much in the way that the country was kept in the grips of fear following 9-11 with the terror alerts, the spin zones, the over-analyses of news stories, the lie which led us to war with Iraq. Pink stars falling is simply an allegory for the world we find ourselves currently living. So when Barbie finds himself scapegoated for political gain, it is not a surprise that he's threatened to be waterboarded. The torture technique was one of the most buzzed-about hot topics during Bush's presidency, so it was just a matter of time before King worked it into the book itself. It should be noted that while the novel is an indictment of Bush's presidency, the military are never roped into the critique. That's why it's important that Barbie, the military figure, is the star. He's the sole voice of reason throughout the novel. And on the outside of the dome, Cox is a problem solver who is completely in support of the citizens of the dome. At no point does he give up trying to help. And that's an important thing to note. So let's talk about Barbie a little bit. Um, I, he's an interesting Stephen King lead. Uh, most Stephen King leads could be characterized as being pretty stiff, but Barbie has a roguish quality about him. First appearing being run out of town after a bar fight the night before. Um, yet he's more than just a scoundrel, but a stand-up hero. He's military. He's a problem solver. He does what he can. He's logical. He's rational. Um, he's, he's funny. So I, I really liked Barbie as a character. I remember not really liking him that much the first time around. But uh, the second time around, I, I, I really liked this characterization. And again, I, I thought that it was... Very, very cool the way that King represented the, the military through Barbie and through Colonel Cox. All right, let us talk about Big Jim Rennie. Here's the deal. He's Stephen King's greatest villain of his more recent novels and is easily within his top five of all time. And actually, to be perfectly honest, he may very well be his number one. Sure, he can't shapeshift into a clown, and he isn't a demonic wizard who roams the highways. Pennywise and Randall Flagg are larger-than-life comic book characters who function as legitimate boogeymen. They're monsters through and through, and their existence is actually comforting because one can easily deduce that if there's a universe that has spawned such monstrous villainy, then there has to be an opposing force. This is why Big Jim is so important. He isn't cartoonish. He isn't a monster who lurks within the sewers. He's an opportunistic blowhard who is frightened of a larger world and seeks to consolidate the power he has within the world he knows by any means necessary. He's the most human of Stephen King's top villains, but nothing about him is humane. It'd be one thing if he believed he was the villain, but King never makes it that easy for us. 
He's dis- as despicable as he is because he justifies his own actions. Whether those actions be the murder of his wife, the murder of Lester Coggins, the drug ring operation, the blackmail and extortion, the threats, the dictatorship he builds for himself, the defiance of the president, the United States military, and God himself. Big Jim Rennie is single-handedly my number one reason to read this book and why this book is so engaging. His character is a wonderfully detailed examination on the type of men that we should be careful of, the ones that we should watch out for. The wheelers and dealers who somehow manage to charm enough people and create a passionate power base that may always be the minority but speak louder and angrier than the majority. And I'm not going to lie or mince words or not speak up here for fear of losing listeners or turning this podcast into political discourse, but I feel that the tale of Big Jim Rennie is frighteningly truthful, and he is the villain he is, is because he's so recognizable. Shades of Rennie can be seen in Donald Trump's bloviating hate-fueled speeches where he presents no solution but instead tears down opposition simply because he seeks to retain his current position. At no point does Rennie have a plan. He simply gets in the way of others with a plan because he needs to be in charge and be, quote-unquote, the best. Now, Rennie isn't the first time King has tackled the corruption and danger of the politician. We've seen it with Buster Keaton, and most famously Greg Stilson, whose story is dangerously close to Trump's rise to the top of the GOP, by the way. Everyone who encountered Stilson thought three things. One, he's insane. Two, he's a bully. Three, he'll never be president because he's so over the top people will see right through him. Much of this applies to Big Jim, who has long been a quiet monster in the town, but one out in the open nevertheless. Everyone knew he was corrupt, but accepted it. With the dome up, the monster unfurls his wings and lets his fire fly. It's his opportunity to claim the total control he's always wanted now that the outside system no longer applies, much in the way that Flag had managed to do the same with Las Vegas in the pages of The Stand. And through it all, his entire arc and danger is undercut by a joke that his day job is a used car salesman. This profession is the go-to reference for an untrustworthy huckster showing us that through all of his ambition, he's nothing but a stereotype, a cliche, a joke. Again, as he had done with the Crimson King, King completely removes the grandeur from the villainy, swapping out classical evil with buffoonery. Okay, guys, let's talk about Stephen King-isms. The first of which, childish aliens playing with our lives. This is very similar to the Tommyknockers, who are very childish in nature. Number two, small town enclosed by an alien force, which is very similar to Tommyknockers. Number three, the imbalanced, short-tempered wildcard who hates his nickname. Junior hates his nickname much like Buster Danforth Keaton hated his. Number four, the faithless priest. This began with Father Callahan back in Salem's Lot. Here we have the Reverend Piper Libby, the preacher who refers to God as not there. She is the latest of a long line of religious characters that King has used to scrutinize religious institutions and or zealotry for various effect. Others include Margaret White, Sylvia Pitson, Mrs. Carmody, and the warring reverends from Needful Things. And Lester Coggins from this novel falls within this list as well. Number five is the special child. Janelle receives... 
um, premonitions throughout her seizures. We've also seen the special child as far back as Carrie, as well as Danny Torrance in The Shining, Dinah in The Langoliers, and many, many others. Number six is Lord of the Flies. King has alluded to the novel's examination of the darker nature of um, man, most famously in Hearts in Atlantis. Number seven, Addiction. Andrea is the latest in a long line of Stephen King addicts. Number eight, Invisible Narrators. When King hits page 800, he switches the perspective to an invisible narrator, or narrators who invite us to fly here and there to check in on various characters. King, along with Peter Straub, used the exact technique for the Black House. Number nine, Bullying. Julia recounts a time she was bullied in her youth when she was attacked by essentially the status quo, which is a larger um, theme. And... Um, Bullying has long been a, uh, a theme that King has explored in his works. Now it's time for Easter eggs. Uh, the first is Shawshank. Uh, Junior is afraid of going to Shawshank Prison. Number two, Castle Rock is mentioned extensively. Number three, Derry is mentioned. At one point, uh, Julia Shumway uh, utters this following line, What did you do? What did you people do? This is the exact line spoken by Stu Redman to the government in the pages of The Stand, um, very famously uttered by Gary Sinise in the adaptation. It was in all of the trailers um, as the, 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 the go-to phrase that I think of when I think of The Stand. Um, the Mist. Uh, this story takes place in one of the worlds within the multiverse where The Mist is a movie. Tarker's Mill. This town borders on Chester's Mill and was the setting for Cycle of the Werewolf. Number seven, the it symbol. When they find the transmitter that is generating the dome, it bears the same mark as the door that led to the spider's lair in it. And number 19, Chester's Mill citizens load into bus 19 to drive through the fire. It doesn't work out well, as anyone that knows the significance of the number 19 would tell you. Okay, guys, and that's all that I have. Um, so for anyone that's still listening, and I know that I didn't get too much into the politic piece, but I do try to respect other people's opinions, and I don't try to put myself in this as much as possible. But I just feel with this, King is really putting it out there, and I needed to comment upon that. And this is an example where, you know, his views and my views perfectly align. Um so for anyone that I offended, I do apologize. Um, I don't want to offend any of my listeners. I certainly don't, but I think that certain things need to be said. Um, I think this is an important one. I think that Under the Dome is very, very important. As end-of-the-world stories go, I think that this is, I think this is even better um, than The Stand. Uh, and as the small-town books go, I think this is better than Needful Things. I think that it's better than um, Salem's Lot. I really, really enjoyed rereading this one, guys. I really, really did. Um, this this really was a treat. It took me a while to get through um, on the second time around, but it was definitely well worth it. Uh, I just I was just kind of shocked at how well he was capturing how we elect our leaders and what our leaders can do when we give them power and we don't check their power. Um, and just the fact that it's a used car salesman. I mean, it's so darkly comedic. It's great. It's great. This is King firing on all cylinders. So if you've never read it um, and you've only seen the show and you've been turned off by the show, 
seriously, don't ignore ignore it and just go read the book because it's it's well worth your time. All right, guys, and then um, I guess the that's all that I have. That's all I have to say. So make sure you come back next week as I review the very dark, very dark as told to us by the title uh, novella collection, full dark, no stars. Uh, and that's, that's, that's a good collection. So thanks everyone for listening. If you have not done so, feel free to uh, write to me at stephenkingcast at yahoo.com and uh, feel free to write a review over on, on iTunes. I want to thank everyone. We're up to over 50 reviews which is which is great um this is now the um i believe the highest rated uh stephen king analysis podcast out there so thanks everybody um so may you have long days and pleasant nights and i will see you here next week where m-o-o-n spells stephen king <laughs>